And welcome on into another installment of Banker with a Beer presented by Northwestern Bank. I'm Scott. We got Jerry across the way. Jerry, how's it going? Winter is upon us, Scott. Uh, in the last couple of days, we've gone from uh, 60s to now 30s. And I'm looking out over uh, uh, the lovely stretch here in River Prairie. And there's snow on the roofs and in the yards. So I guess we've transitioned seasons. It very much is a, a, a winter-type feel around, and uh, we'll get to the to the guest here in just a moment, but uh, what did you bring on for the beverage today? I have a great beverage today, Scott. Uh, actually, it's a tribute. I'm going to be uh, taking a brewery uh, pilgrimage here, starting, leaving in a couple days, heading to Belgium, and one of our, one of our uh, beverages we're going to be uh, going and enjoying is going to be an Orval, which is a Trappist ale, which is brewed at a Trappist monastery, and the the south side of uh, Belgium. So uh, that's going to be our beverage today, and we'll give it a shot. It's, uh, frankly, one of my favorites, and I hope you enjoy it. So you're, you're getting the, the taste buds and the belly ready for uh, your trip. And uh, as you get ready to pour, introduce the guest that we have on this week. We have a great guest. We are honored to have uh, John Frank, who is a longtime radio personality, professor at UW-Eau Claire, and a local political expert and analyst. And given that we've just concluded a uh, very interesting uh, election cycle, uh, I thought his insights into uh, the process and his outcome would be uh, very interesting for our listeners. And I'm going to be very excited myself to hear uh, his comments and his insights of what happened. Well, while you pour the beverage, let's bring on uh, John to the conversation. And, uh, John, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, I know uh, people get a chance to see you on TV every once in a while, and uh, they know it's election season because they'll see you pop up. Uh, but uh, you, you do a lot more than pop up uh, every so often on television to talk politics. So give us the, the, the who you are. Well, thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. <clears throat> First of all, i got to clear my throat. The winter's had an effect on me, you know. And uh, uh, But uh, uh, my name is John Frank. I, I've been I've a lifelong resident of the uh, city of Eau Claire. And uh, uh, spent, uh, I'm retired now. I spent the last 40-plus uh, years as an attorney and a college professor here in town. I was uh, principally located at the Chippewa Valley Technical College, where I chaired the uh, liberal arts program and also uh, was the director of the paralegal program which I helped start back in 1978. Uh, also was a visiting professor at the UW <coughs> Wisconsin, <coughs> excuse me, Madison Law School uh, as well as UW Eau Claire, UW Stout and Lakeland College. And probably of interest to our topic today is the fact that uh, for 14 years I spent out in Washington DC as the uh, 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 chair uh, of uh, uh, Congressman Steve Gunderson's office. I was his uh, chief of staff and uh, also uh, was uh, for four years was the uh, uh, counsel for the House Committee on Agriculture. So when, uh, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll hear about uh, political experts and what have you. You're somebody that's actually lived it, uh, not just uh, looked at the numbers. Yes, I, I've lived it. And as you pointed out, I, for the last 25 years, I've been the political analyst for one of the local TV stations, WAU. And uh, uh, 
And people often ask me, what is it that a political analyst does that's different than the political pundit? And I said, well, a political analyst tries to explain the unexplainable. <laughs> well, beverage has been uh, been poured there. Uh, J- Jerry, you messed up the pour today. This eh? is a lively one, Scott. This had, I, I don't know why this one has just so much uh, CO2 under it. But yeah, this uh, this was not a pretty pour today. This I did not do well. I failed. Well, the body's already on vacation uh, for you, but uh, we'll, we'll clink them and drink them here and Now, once I got through the head, it was uh, very tasty. It's a very good beer. It's, it's that'll be good that'll beer. be outstanding. So that'll help to lubricate the conversation, as Jerry likes to say. And, and, and John, before I know Jerry's got a bunch of questions for you, but I, I, I want to bring this because you you you've you've lived and worked in Washington and been mm-hmm. a part of that. And you know, one of the great things of being around this country is one of my good friends now down in the St. Louis area. Uh, where I call baseball in the summers, and we hang out. He spent a number of years working on various political campaigns uh, through the uh, the late 2000s into the uh, early 2010s and what have you, and lived and worked in Washington. And he said, you know, maybe nowadays it's different, but there was a lot more, hey, people would battle each other out in the, the, the middle of the halls, and then they'd go have a beer together afterwards, and people would hang out together. It was, it was very much a communal feeling across both aisles. Uh, did you get a chance to experience that? Oh, absolutely. That, that was our experience on Washington. Again, I was out there starting in 1981 and uh, came back to Eau Claire back in 1997. And uh, that was indeed the experience. Uh, being counsel for the committee, you know, I got to be down on the House floor a lot, working with the members directly uh, when we were working on legislation. And yes, during, during the middle of battle, there was like a firebrand. I mean, you know, people were going back and forth always politely and courteously. Obviously, uh, because that's the re- that's the requirement of the, the decorum on the House floor, and that's why when you listen to it, it sounds so stilted because you cannot refer to a person by their first name or their last name. You must refer to them as either the gentleman or the gentle lady from the state in which they come from, and uh, and if it's the Senate, then the senator from the state from which they are from. And the reason for that is because they want it to be very cordial and going on, even though it's you're in the heat of battle and. Yes, you, you would go back and forth, and then afterwards you'd go out and have dinner together uh, because you realized that this was democracy at work, and uh, you're going to have winners and you're going to have losers. And yes, you may have got me this time, but maybe next time it's going to be my turn. <laughs> well, given that background, I think you're probably as well qualified as anybody in western Wisconsin, frankly, to kind of give an insight of what happened with this last election. I think we entered the season um, with this idea that historically the party out of power gained seats. Uh, There was a lot of optimism on the side of the Republicans that there was going to be this red wave and then maybe a red uh, ripple and maybe not so much. Um, And again, this is an apolitical show, but from your perspective, John, what happened? And I'm glad you mentioned, Jerry, that it's an apolitical show because that's what I've done for 25 years on the TV station. I try to call it down the middle. I don't try to favor one side or the other side. Uh, One of the best stories I had was back in uh, 2004 during the uh, presidential election, uh, uh, the first, uh, second time that George Bush was running for president. Uh, Pat Kreitlow, who was the anchor at the time, warned me after the second presidential debate. He says, John, he says, we got to do something. Uh, We have to uh, take up a couple of phone calls 
phone calls we had after your analysis after the first debate. Uh, he said, we had a couple of telephone calls, and of course, I didn't know what he was talking about. And he says, so when we go on camera and analyze, he says, give me just a few seconds to do that. So we went on camera, and he says, and now here's our political analyst, John Frank, and he will uh, uh, talk a little bit about the second debate. But before we do that, John, he says, you know, we had a couple of telephone calls. And he looked at me, and uh, of course, I've got you know, the deer in the headlights look, you know, into the camera. And uh, he says, well, you know, about five minutes off, we were off the air. Uh, we uh, uh, got a telephone call saying, I don't know why you let that John Frank do the political analysis. He's the worst conservative I've ever heard. And then he says, about 10 minutes later, we had another telephone call. And the person at that end said, I don't know why you let that John Frank do the political analysis. He's the worst liberal I've ever heard. And Judy Clark looked over and says, that tells us you're exactly where we need you to be. Perfect. So, uh, so what I do is just going to be pure numbers analysis, not one side or the other, not being critical of one party or one candidate or the other. Um, I think what will help us to understand what happened here is to look at it from a timeline perspective. I'm going to go back to about six months prior to the election, back to about March and April, and just take a look and watch what happened over that period of time and what influenced the, uh, the changes in the polls and some of the pundits' predictions. Uh, eventually, they ended up where they started out, but and of course, most of them were wrong, uh, but, uh, uh, but I think it, it's helpful. And I think one of the point, things in your question that's very instructive is you said, you know, the party out of power in a midterm election, uh, that is the election between the two elections the president is elected and or re-elected, uh, the midterm election in the middle of the president's term, generally the president's power party uh, is uh, loses seats, loses seats both in the House and the Senate. On average, if you look past uh, uh, since 1948 and uh, Harry Truman, on average they lose about 25 seats in the House and they lose about three seats in the Senate. And so, you know, you have to understand political pundits are, like most human beings, creatures of habit. And as a result, they have a tendency to believe that history is going to repeat itself. And so that's where they started from back in March and April. They started from the position, number one, that historically, you know, the president's party this time would be the Democrats is going to lose seats. And then what happened was they had that one little cluster of thought, and then they looked at the polls and saw that President Biden's approval rating was in the high 30s, low 40s, which is pretty low, you know, even for you know, the, the first midterm. And they looked at that, and then they also said, well, this is a midterm election, and that means that younger voters generally don't come out in as large numbers. And so they added those three things together to form, as we all know that great movie, The Perfect Storm. And therefore, they start saying, well, you know, this is not going to be just a normal election. This is not just going to be a normal election where they lose 25, you know, and three. It's probably going to be a little bit more than that. Well, John, I might even add one more item to that. Maybe this you're getting, I'm getting ahead of you. But then as the economy started to deteriorate, well, then there's another, my understanding, kind of an axiom where, you know, when it all comes down to it, uh, people will vote their pocketbook. And if they consider their pocketbook threatened by the current administration, they vote to take them out. Uh, absolutely. And of course, that goes back to the classic Ronald Reagan question when he was running against Jimmy Carter, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Right. In this case, are you better off now than you were two years ago? And so, yes, that, you know, that, that adds to it, and certainly it was part of it. And so that's what led them to believe that this was going to be a big red wave back in March and April. Now, 
What happened was in May and then in June, uh, we started hearing first in May a rumor and then in June a confirmation that the Supreme Court was going to overturn the Roe versus Wade uh, decision in Dobbs. And Jerry, you and I serve on a committee and that rumor came from the Washington Post, <coughs> excuse me, came out uh, a day um, uh, after that, uh, uh, before our committee met and somebody asked me at that committee meeting, you know, what you know, what, is, uh, what does all this mean? I said, the election just changed, and it changed dramatically. And when that became not just a rumor, but a finality, then all of a sudden, you saw it swing back saying, okay, maybe this isn't gonna be a huge tsunami, maybe it's just gonna be an average red wave. And then, in July and August, <coughs> excuse me again, winter is getting to me, uh, in July and August, um, when we looked at the primary elections, suddenly you saw there was just an, an, a, a, a large number of Republicans who were showing up to vote in the primary elections. There were a number of people voting in Republicans, and the Republican part of the primary election was much larger than the Democrats. So they were emboldened by that, so it swung back to say, well, maybe this is going to be more than just a red wave. And then on top of that, you came to September, where the polls are starting to show that Republicans were very enthusiastic. And finally, in October, all of a sudden, the Democrats caught up in enthusiasm, but most of the pundits said, well, that's a little bit too little too late. And so that's why you saw the pundits predicting that this was going to be at least an average red wave, and maybe more than that, more than that. Now, now historically, John, there, there was always an incentive, or not an incentive, but it, they do polling. And so uh, the polling would, would say this or that or, or something else. And... Um, in about, I think, well, it must have been with, with Trump's election in 16, that was probably the first time in a long time where, you know, the pollings, you know, had, you know, a certain outcome kind of predestined. And it was, I mean, it, if you look at, at politics as being theater, it was wonderful theater to see literally the pundits on television kind of crump as they're seeing these numbers come in and say, this, this isn't supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. This wasn't have to be. So it really discredited a lot of this polling that had been done. And since then, you know, especially when there are issues with privacy that are coming out and, and people, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, how many phone calls I get received at home or on my cell phone and everyone else, you know, some I'm guessing are from polling agencies that most of them probably are never picked up. Can you get even a good feel today for a poll if so many people are even opting out of sharing their opinion one way or the other. Well, Jerry, you, you, you've really pinpointed a major problem with polling, and that is, you know, you have a number of people who don't want to share, and the second part of that is you, a poll is only as good as the truthfulness of the pe person who's polled. And there are a lot of people, you know, who uh, you, you didn't only see this in 2016, but you also saw it in 2008 uh, when uh, uh, Barack Obama was running for president. A lot of people, uh, they, the, the poll showed him he was, he eventually, of course, won and won significantly, but the poll showed him winning by a much more significant margin than that. Well, that's because sometimes people simply don't want their, their concern because, you know, they think the pollster knows who they are, and so they may not always tell the truth about things. And I think that was the case that you had both in the Trump election and the Obama election. And so you have to be careful with polls because uh, they're only as good as the questions that are asked and the responses of the people that come in. 
the, the other thing about polls is you always have to remember it's a snapshot in time. And by the time you're looking at it, it's already ancient history uh, because it's, it's at least two to three days old. And so it's what was the thinking, if it was legitimate, two or three days ago. And so you have to be careful. And that's why I don't go an awful lot like polls. And that's why, again, Jerry, you'll remember when I, I was asked, you know, to kind of predict the results uh, back about six, eight weeks ago and by the, and that committee on which we serve. Um, uh, I pulled out the three things that I used to help me predict. I pulled out my Ouija board, my crystal ball, and my tarot cards. <laughs> and I predicted that the Republicans would take control of the House, but not the Senate. And that in Wisconsin, where the Republicans were working on a supermajority, I predicted that they would get it in the state Senate, but not the state assembly. Because I didn't think that this, there was going to be as big a red wave, and I called it a red ripple, uh, as uh, that a, a number of other people thought. So, okay, so, so that we've gone through the election cycle. Yes. This is what's happened. It was, you know, maybe uh, overplayed on the part of the Republicans. There was maybe some issues with, with, with polling. All that being said, what does it mean now going forward for, for politics in the country and on the state? Because they're, they're both, you know, our listeners are uh, probably as concerned with what's going to happen in the state of Wisconsin as well on the national level. Well, you have to look at both the state of Wisconsin as well as the national level to see that uh, you have shared governance uh, at the national level. At this point, you know, they're still counting votes as, as we are recording this podcast. But my guess is that the House, the Republicans are going to control by somewhere between four and eight seats. Uh, it looks like the Democrats will control the Senate. In, in Wisconsin, it looks like you have a... Uh, uh, Republican majority, well, we know there's a Republican majority in both the State Assembly and State Senate, but there's a Democratic governor. So you've got shared governance. You do not have one political party that's dominating or has control of both the legislative and executive branches. And so what that means is there's going to be, have to be a lot of give and take. Now, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, that also means there's probably not a whole lot that's going to get done. Okay, I, I mean, I don't know how to, you know, uh, say it any other way. Uh, but if if you're if you're talking about, you know, what's going to happen with the federal government, because the Democrats now control the Senate like they had before, uh, it's the appointment process, you know, appointing judges and so on. It's going to be easier. But because the Republicans control the House, it means that there's probably going to be some investigations into some dem democratic tactics that'll that'll occur. Uh, but it also means uh, that there's probably going to be no major legislation that's going to go through that's going to have new spending to it. So, from uh, you know a, an American perspective, you know from the country's perspective, dealing with all this inflation, that's probably good news because there's not going to be new spending programs. There's not more money that's going to be spent. But it's also bad news because it also means there's probably not going to be the spending cuts that we really need right now to address inflation. Because inflation is the number one issue that's facing the country. Um, you know, it, it, uh, you don't have to just you know, talk to one person or, you know, one group of people. Everybody, that was the number one issue that they listed. And it was inflation. And the problem is, uh, in order to address and do what we have to do with inflation, we need more than just monetary policy to do it. I always told my students uh, when I was teaching economics, I always told my students that, you know, if the economy gets in trouble, the government has two toolboxes. And I said, if you can imagine, one's the size of your lunchbox. That's monetary policy. And the other one is the size of your mechanic's big toolbox in the garage, which is about five feet high and about four feet long. That's fiscal policy. 
The problem is, you know, you can, monetary policy is easier to deal with because you just need the Federal Reserve to take care of that. But you've got 536 people who are dealing with fiscal policy. Uh, you know, we since the 1930s and John Maynard Keynes, this country has, and I always refer to John Maynard Keynes as the Vince Lombardi of economists because Vince Lombardi always said, if you want to win a football game, you practice, practice, practice. John Maynard Keynes says, if you want to pull yourself out of a economic trouble, the government needs to spend, 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 if consumers aren't spending. Well, the problem with fiscal policies, because there's 536 people who are all trying to maneuver it, it's tough to get something done more than once. And so they try to do everything. And so you have to estimate, am I going to do enough? Am I not going to do, an, am I going to do too much? And quite frankly, what we did in terms of fiscal policy is we overused fiscal policy in response to the economic problems that we were at. We were already in a situation with cost push inflation in 2020 and 2021, supply chain problems, you know, supply and, and uh, uh, factories that provide uh, 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 raw materials to others, you know, they were shut down. And so that already is going to deal with inflation. And then on top of that, we didn't do just one stimulus, uh, but we did a second stimulus in 2021. And that really was something that we really didn't do, and that just exacerbated the inflation problem. So the good news in all of this is that you're not going to have another bill that's going to go through uh, and spend more money, probably because of the split between the Republicans and the Democrats. But the bad news, unfortunately, the bad news is you're not going to be able to get the cuts that you need in what's out there already. Wow. So uh, thanks for, for that ex explanation. But uh, also, and can I ask you, you know, a question uh, to me in – uh, again, I, I've got to be careful here with being apolitical. How do you, what's your feeling? I'll call it the Trump factor. I mean, uh, he, he, the, the character that uh, Donald Trump plays over elections right now is something quite large, very maybe unique in American politics where, you know, you have the, the, this almost cult of personality where you have this gentleman who's, you know, by his sheer um, force of will, in garners, you know, uh, probably, I don't know, 20 to 30 percent of the vote. The, uh, and I'm not sure if that's the case anymore, but just how he weighs into things or doesn't weigh into things seems to swing things at this point. What's your perspective that he will play? He just announced a day or two ago that he's going to be seeking the presidential nomination on the Republican side in 2024. What does that do to politics, you know, between now and the time of the election? Yeah. It's a really good question. Uh, and again, being a, totally apolitical about it and just analyzing the facts of the last election, we talked about what happened. We didn't really go into great detail on why it happened. And there were a number of reasons. There were a number of reasons why uh, what the pundits were predicting didn't happen. Uh, you can talk about how the abortion issue was, was bigger than what people anticipated. You can talk about the fact, particularly on major college campuses, uh, that the younger voters turned out in greater numbers than they did they didn't on smaller campuses like UW-Eau Claire and Stout, but down like in Madison they did. Uh, also, uh, the thing, another reason was that we misread the primaries. A lot of the pundits misread the primaries. The big Republican turnout, by the way, wasn't just Republicans, but it was a lot of Democrats who perceived that in a race where there's three or four people running, that the one that was going to be the weakest was going to be the Trump-endorsed candidate. And so they crossed over and voted for that. That's why there were so many votes in July and August in the Republican primaries, and they crossed over. And they got those people on the ballot. And 
as a result, you know, the, those were the Trump endorsed, and as a result of that, as well as uh, some late minute uh, uh, um, barnstorming that he did, uh, I think that turned what was possibly going to be a normal Republican wave into a, a Republican ripple instead. Uh, the Trump factor, uh, and it wasn't universal across the board, but the bottom line was that if you take a look at the races, that uh, uh, the American voters, particularly the people who are in the suburbs, middle America, middle income people, uh, had a tendency to vote against what they perceived to be political extremism, whether it be on the political right or on the political left. They voted against the extremism. And you can just take a look at Wisconsin as a good example, but it, it, but it follows in Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and a few other states too. But in Wisconsin, the Democrat candidate for governor, Tony Evers, uh, got uh, 90,000 votes more than the Republican candidate who was endorsed by Trump. But yet the U.S. Senate candidate who was a Democrat, Mandela Barnes, got 26,000 votes less than the Republican uh, Senate candidate, the Senator Ron Johnson. In other words, Johnson did 68,000 uh, votes better than um, Michaels, and Barnes did 48,000 um, uh, votes worse than Evers. In other words, in other words, political, and this was largely middle America suburbs that were splitting their tickets and voting for what they perceived, the first candidate they perceived to be less extreme, regardless if it's on the right or the left. Got about uh, five or so minutes left here, so I want to want to ask you. You kind of touched on this right here. Will we see more of a pull to the middle? You know, as a, as a person right here, that my ballot always looks very, very purple. Will we see more of a pull to the middle? And, and second to that, I want to get your thoughts on this. I mentioned my friend before; he he's always thought this uh, too. How much has in the last twenty years the rise of of cable? and sort of the celebrity of politicians influenced how extreme things got. Okay, let's ask, answer your second question first. There's no question, you know, that the rise of social media, regardless if it's a television cable, regardless of what it is, uh, has certainly added to it because uh, people can go anywhere they want now to find somebody who agrees with them. And people have a tendency to turn into only those shows where they know in advance you know, that the person is going to agree with them. So there is no question. Scott, that was a, it's a wonderful, you know, analysis on your part. That's exactly what's happened. Okay, now, with respect to the first question, I see this country, and I've, I've seen it in the last few elections, uh, and it starts in the purple states, like uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and a few others. But I see people moving back toward the middle. Uh, and they, uh, and in fact, it's possible by the time we get to 2024, we may have a third political party in this country that's more directed toward the middle of the road as opposed to the far right or the far left. And there have been some, you know, some people out there who have been trying to put this together, former Democrat presidential candidate, former Republican governor, talking about putting together a political party that's more in the middle and calling it the forward party. Great name for the state of Wisconsin since our motto is forward. You know, so yes, you know, I, I see this happening and it, it clearly what I, I gave you illustrated in Wisconsin with respect to our governor and U.S. Senate, you can go to New Hampshire, the exact same thing happened. The Republican governor won, candidate for governor won, the Democrat uh, won for the U.S. Senate. Once again, 
people voted against the most extreme candidate that they perceived to be most extreme. Final question. I know we've got to get wrapped up. This is great. We could go on for, for hours in this one, John. But uh, question I have for you, and we talked a little bit b before uh, the show and, and uh, a little bit later, was this idea that at one point, like I said, there, there was this, you know, at least on the floor of the House or on the floor of the Senate, there was this, you know, very strong uh, held beliefs in, in people, I won't say the theater of politics, but you know, certainly uh, these, these issues were expressed uh, quite strongly, yet then afterwards people would get along and they, they'd connect. Uh, my understanding is that doesn't happen so much anymore. And can we, is there, in today's world with social media and with uh, the passions people express with their politics, uh, is there any hope, from your opinion, of going back to a time that's a little bit more genteel in how politics plays out? Absolutely, absolutely, Jerry. Uh, there's no, there's no doubt that there's hope, but somebody's got to take the first step. Okay, and notice what I said that when we left the floor of the House after you know the legislation had passed or had been rejected, as the case may be, uh, we went out and had dinner together. Okay, and it's it's much like family. Uh, oftentimes you have families that squabble, but the minute you can sit them down at the table together, suddenly they start to work things out. And that's what you're going to have to do. Uh, and uh, you can start with the staff, you can move to uh, the members themselves, the senators themselves, but you need to sit them down and just be social and find out more about, the more you find out about somebody and their families, you know, how many kids they've got, what their pets' names are, and so on and so forth, the more likely it is that you're going to get along with them politically as well. Well, thanks so much for uh, listening to uh, Scott and I talk with John Frank over a beverage today. If you like what you've heard, please give Banker a beer, a five-star rating, and review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about us and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Northwestern Bank website, or wherever you listen to your podcast from. Bank with the Beer is sponsored by Northwestern Bank, building stronger communities where people matter.